fucking D girl. Excuse me? Excuse me, I'm a vice president. You fucking asshole. All right. How are you guys doing? Good. 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 I'm going to apologize in advance because I nerded out like way too hard. So just just indulge me. Um, the thing is, is that there's a lot of like the notion that this episode is like a palate cleanse episode like we talk about. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is actually, but we'll get into it. So anyway, welcome. Uh, we are together on a Sunday now. We're just throwing all kinds of days at the wind here and we're, and we're showing <laughs> up and, and making it happen. It's Sunday morning. We're talking about Episode 7 of Season 2, D-Girl. The air date was February 27th, 2000. Um, Again, a lot of people consider this episode slow or out of left field. This is just stuff that I read on Reddit and other stuff that we've seen. I'm sure you guys have heard this as well. But I completely disagree. When you place the show in a context of the series, um, it's a real thing of beauty. And in many ways, the D-Girl distraction is just part of the calculus, for me at least. Ambiguity, regularness of life. We learned that the movie business is actually not that glamorous. That's a little bit gangster itself. It's Mm -hmm. a little bit gangster itself. And then the interesting thing that I want to, like, get into is that Tony is still the focal point of this episode, even though he's barely in it. He's basically got Chris, AJ, and Puss by the balls, the whole episode, and he didn't even have to do much or say much. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Um, This episode was written by Todd Kessler, who I may or may not have mentioned in the past is one of the people behind Bloodline on Netflix. I love that show. You watched it all? Yeah, it's a good show, right? Great show. They canceled it. Really? Yeah. It only made two seasons, right? Only made, I think they did, I feel like... They die at the end. They die at the end. Um... How great is that actor, um, the Rogue Brother? I forget his name. Yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. He was in the Star Wars, somewhat recent Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's. I'm doing a disservice by not knowing his name. Yeah, we should look. He has a British accent, number yeah. one, or he's Australian. I'm sorry, and he. I saw him walking. His ben do- Mendelson. Ben Mendelson. So he has an Australian accent, and I saw him walking his dog around the Silver Lake Reservoir. Amazing. I followed him. What kind of dog? Uh, I wasn't paying attention to the dog. I just noticed. <laughs> I just noticed an animal on a leash, and then I was like, "That's Ben Mendelsohn." Um, I read uh, this is first of the five episodes written by Kessler. Yeah, but uh, he also makes an appearance uh, as like an FBI technician later on in the series. Really? Yeah, it's always funny that that's like the second or third time I've heard about someone either writing or directing, and then playing some small extra part in the show. Love it. I love how they do that. And he also has made a bunch of other stuff as well. And he's been nominated for Grammys. He's been nominated, or not Grammys, nominated for Golden Globes and Emmys, but has never actually won. Um, This is a very well-written episode, I must say. Directed by Alan Coulter. Um, I failed, you guys, and did not do the HBO synopsis. So this morning before you came, I wrote a Vic synopsis. Okay, so... Christopher flirts with the movie business and his cousin's fiance. AJ officially enters teenage angst with a little help from Nietzsche. Pussy all but ensures a collision course with Tony. John Favreau, we now know, could have played Joe Gallo because John Favreau can now pretty much do anything he fucking wants to. Mm-hmm. Title D Girl, Development Girl. Mm hmm. Is a derogatory term for a cute young development executive with no power. 
is one, yeah, is one way, but they're also the ones that like produce and develop projects. That's why she reads the script first. Right. She's not a D girl, as we will find out yes. later. She's a vice president. So she says, <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's jump right into the D girl and John Favreau portion of the program. We're introduced to a few people. We're introduced to cousin Greg, the ambulance chaser, played by. Uh, do you guys get the actor's name? No. No, but he's in Nurse Jackie. Thank you. You didn't watch that show though, no, but you know but this I about know him. That, he's I... he's Edie Falco's husband. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It's really upsetting. Well, and he's mentioned in the first episode uh, when Christopher meets up with email. Yeah. And he goes, "Oh, you played football with my cousin." Yeah. Yep, I got that as well. We meet him for a moment, and he's significant because of what we just talked about. And then we're introduced to uh, Amy, the D-girl. Alicia Witt is the actress that plays her. She's an actress, singer, and pianist. She's considered by Wikipedia to be a musical prodigy. She was a child actress on two David Lynch projects. She also had a role in Cameron Crowe's Vanilla Sky. And I scrubbed through that movie real quick to try to find her, and I couldn't. Do you guys know what role she played? I don't remember her in that. She was in Friday Night Lights. And she's co-written some songs with Ben Folds. Interesting. Yeah. I love some Ben Folds. Me too. I'm okay with Ben Folds, yeah. I'm a subscriber. Cue the music. And an ambulance chaser, that's a lawyer, right? Yeah. Yeah, ambulance chaser's a lawyer. Do you like, take offense to something like that? As no, a... there's derogatory terms in every industry. I mean, yeah. ambulance chasers are a very specific breed of, of lawyer. They, you know, they're injury, personal injury lawyers. Got it. Um, they make a lot of money. Never just, your cup of tea. Just not my cup of tea. Law. My cup of tea is making podcasts and talking about The Sopranos. <laughs> There's a reference to a movie that's made, uh, it's called Made, and um, it's a movie that John Favreau made in real life. Um, did you guys see it? No. Okay. I've watched it. But Didn't have the same heft as Swingers. Well, a couple characters from Sopranos were in that movie, Three. too. Yeah. Furio, Adriana, and Puss were all in the movie. Really? Yep. Impressions on Amy. She had no Italian roots, right? No. No. Christopher even mentions she's got her own Cosa Nostra thing going on at Yale. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan. I think she did a great job making you not like her. Yeah. And then also making you kind of think about her. Like, could she be an Adriana replacement? It was interesting to watch the, the difference between Adriana's reactions and Amy's reactions. Like, for example, in the club where they first met, Adriana rolled her eyes when Chrissy went over to talk to the guy, and Amy got all, like, turned on by it. Mm-hmm. So it's just so interesting to see how both women reacted. And even when he started talking about how she doesn't dress like a woman, Chrissy, I was like, is he doing that because he's intimidated by her, or is he just trying to make Adriana feel better? It was really interesting. In this one episode, I felt like the actress Amy portrayed psychology a little bit more. Like, I got, I understood her game, like, what she was trying to to prove and, like, what she wanted to win and, like, get from people in a way. Was she trying to reduce Adriana in the intro? Was she trying to assert her? I I don't think so, because she threw her a compliment. I don't think she really cared for her earrings, but she was going to say she liked them anyway. Yeah, but is that that side smile, like, hey, nice earrings, but I really am, like... Making fun of you in my head? Maybe in your head, but I think Adriana didn't catch that. Right. And Adriana, I also thought it was really cute how sweet and polite Adriana was working overtime to try to, like, impress them. Was she doing it for Christopher? Yeah. yeah. And he was mortified, which was, was hilarious. Oh, there's some great stills of yeah. him, like, looking away when he said, we're going to go see Tarantino or Tarantino's people. And it was very comforting to watch, but it was also it was also very awkward because yeah. um, a lot of this episode is about Christopher just being out of his depth yeah. with the Hollywood A-list types. Is Favreau an A-lister at this point in his career? Or he's on the brink? In, oh, in this time? In this episode, yeah. 
I don't know. I just always picture him as he's an A-lister m- now. Monica's Why? boyfriend and friends. It's like unfortunate. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh, wow. He plays the billionaire wrestler, which confused. Well, he had just kind of off the heels of Swingers when this episode was made. Yeah. So they were playing on a up and coming new actor director. Lots of friends. This one though, Amy. She's mentioning that this person's a friend. That person's a friend. You told me Tarantino. I worked for Quinnen. He's still a friend. That's, That's what they do. It's I a very it. industry thing. I think she played that to perfection. You know, she kind of did that, dropped those lines to make you feel like there was a lot of inside baseball going on. And if you don't know about the industry and if you don't know the people in it, it's nice to kind of get your, this is the introduction that you're getting to that world. And I think they portrayed it very accurately. Yeah, yeah she was obnoxious to a T, but it, I think by design. But polite. Yeah. politely obnoxious she which is exactly how, how most people are right. in that world so you guys don't think she was judgy with adriana i sense a, i sense the tinge of judginess i'm sure she i mean she's an ivy league pretentious rich you know executive that went to yale i doubt she cares much about adriana yeah. but she was trying really hard yeah i don't think she was intimidated by her no at all the Bridge and Tunnel Boy reference. It's a classic reference. If you lived in New York, you've heard it a thousand times. Yes. Um, it's a reference to someone who obviously doesn't live in the city, right? Mm-hmm. What do you guys think Chris said to the guy? I don't know. Uh, I mean, at this point in this universe, you can assume that Tony Soprano is a known person. So maybe he dropped that name. And I mean, it could be a million different things. He didn't say we're with the Vipers? <laughs> we're with the Vipers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Reddit has a thread on what was possibly said, and there are about 300 opinions. Oh, wow. And We're With the Vipers was the top voted one. <laughs> I, I mean, I honestly, like, I feel like the expression on the guy's face, it went from smile to, like, steel-cold fear. Yeah. And he probably said something like, there's a guy that's going to follow you home today, and this will be your last day on Earth kind of thing. Yeah. Um, maybe a little less eloquently or direct, but, I mean, that's, that's kind of what, what else would you say to get him to immediately say, let's leave now? Yeah. You know? It's pretty awesome. Very awesome. And yeah. it was, her reaction was perfect. Yeah. She was putty in his hand. Even I was like, her face was the heart emoji eye. Totally. Okay. So, John, you mentioned Swingers. Mm-hmm. Swingers is a 1996 film. Naya, you've seen Swingers, right? I have. Okay, good. A Swingers is a 1996 film about unemployed actors in the Los Feliz area who take an impromptu trip to Vegas. Have you guys seen the three putt place on the, off the freeway, off the five and Los Feliz Boulevard across from Griffith Park? You know that diner called mm-hmm. Eat? Mm-hmm. That golf course that was filmed in this movie. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Any favorite scenes in that movie? No, I, I remember watching it being younger, obviously. and Not in a swinger status? Not in a swinger status. Uh, it was fun. It was a fun movie. You watch it now and they just seem so young. Yeah. yeah. Everybody seems, and we seem so old. Right. I but, like the phone call where he's trying to figure out how to leave a message. I yeah. forget exactly oh, what that yeah, is. But that good. one, I remember being able to be like, wow, I didn't know men do that too. Like, is it rewatchable? Totally. It is rewatchable, even today. Even in our, okay. I haven't watched it in years. I remember the first half being pretty solid, the pre-Vegas, beginning Vegas stuff. And then for some reason, I feel like the movie tapered off a little bit, even when I watched it when I was younger. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, think, I feel like it's a coming of age. I feel like anybody who's at that stage could get something out of it. I, I think it's aged pretty well. I live up the street from Heather Graham, too. Just, I see her sometimes. Currently? Mm-hmm. Nice. This kind of launch put her on the map, too. Yeah. Um, who's had the better career since, Vince or Favreau? I'd say Vince. Really? 
Uh, I mean, John Favreau, uh, he's directing some of the biggest, most lucrative movies ever. So it's by by sheer numbers. By sheer numbers. By math, John Favreau's had the better career. Really? What is he doing? Have you seen Elf? It's a pretty good movie. He's a big time director. Yeah, I guess he's doing a Star Wars Deep Impact, one of the greatest movies ever. (laughs) I guess that's true. Okay, but Vince Vaughn has my heart. Yeah, Wedding Crashers, public, and and. And who ruled Swingers? I mean, it's a Vince Vaughn movie. Vince was also in The Cell. I see yeah. Vince occasionally in Manhattan Beach when I'm out there. Nice. Yeah, he lives in that area. He's so tall. For some reason, that was my D-girl drop right now. For some reason, I thought he lived in uh, La Cañada Flint Ridge. Why Maybe. did you think that? That's because, a weird thing. To- because I read it on Curbed. Oh. I got in a Curbed email that Vince Vaughn <laughs> buys house in La Cañada Flint Ridge. <laughs> but it might have been years ago. And you know what? Vince Vaughn probably has multiple houses. He, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm pretty sure that he that's when he wants to go uh, live country style as opposed to living on in Manhattan Beach. He's hilarious, but I love him in his serious roles. Like when he did Psycho or yeah. even the... Um, the Cell he was great the in. The Cell was good. What's the... Uh, a Cool Place. True Detective. True Detective. Even though that season was bad, was bad he was good. Mm-hmm. So I checked out of that season. So I didn't even get a chance to appreciate. He dies at the end. It wasn't good. So Chris, Chris wants to be a player. I love movies, but I just want to be a player. I don't want to fuck around with all this other shit. Okay. Which, as we know, last season, you know, he was trying to find his arc. So what's up with the sea change from season one? How do you go from I want to be a screenwriter to I want to be an exec producer? When did this happen? Uh, I think he's been biding his time waiting to be made and not progressing the way that he thought he would and getting a taste of someone in that career has probably piqued his interest. Yeah, I think it's also, I'm sure he doesn't really know all the correct hierarchy of how the movie industry works. So, you know, he doesn't want to be an actor. He doesn't want to play unless he's playing himself. Like, it's like this, you know, unless you're in, you you want all the ego. Like, even I, I know, like, I want everyone to know that I can sing. This is my song. This is my script. This is my thing. Like, I want to be... The, not just the screener, the executive, like just saying it without really even understanding, understanding what it the is. Implications. Yeah, he just wants to be in, in like the top, which is like it makes me be like, oh, you don't know anything still. So cute. His eyes lit up on set. I was like, oh. Yeah, he was having so much fun. I know. It was a little he, Dunkin' Donuts bag. That's my nitpick. The script was in there because I had asked, I know, what but was why? Because he's from Jersey. No he went satchel, to Dunkin' no, Donuts. No leather, like. That's uh, what's why I was like, that makes so much. He's like a Dunkin' Donuts bag to put a script in. Oh, man. I, I just, bless his heart. I just, yeah, bless his heart. Um, before we leave this first part and move on, um, I, I wanted to see if you guys had any recasts for if, we, if Swingers were filmed today, who'd you guys have? I had one person. I couldn't come up with. I can think of the guy from It's Always Sunny, but I never remember his name. The one with a really for, annoying voice. For who? I don't know. For any of them. Just in that mix. I'd want to see him at, with what a about bunch you, John? of people. I can't touch that movie. You can't touch it? I think if you... It'd be like replacing Tony Soprano with some other actor. Like, oh. I can't. I can't. Oh! Mess with. <laughs> you go too far, my friend. So, I have Chris Sullivan from This Is Us for John Favreau. Mm. You're always casting This Is Us people. It was my I've never seen that show. I went to high school with Chris Sullivan. Oh, okay. True story. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's it. I couldn't come up with anybody for Vince Vaughn because that's all, that is a little sacrilegious. Yeah. Recast D Girl today. I have a good one. Who would Amy be today? Amy Adams. I would want, yeah, I guess Amy Adams, but she's not, I mean, I think she's beautiful, but she doesn't have, I don't think Chrissy would want to sleep with I'm Amy so excited Adams. to tell you guys mine. Uh, I just yours? keep getting stuck with the redhead thing. I, well, I, I think it should be a redhead. Okay, ready? Yes. Sansa Stark. 
Sophie Turner. Oh, oh. you really Mike thought Trout. about that. I really thought yes, about that one, yeah. That's a great one. I was up late last night. Okay, let's move on to AJ. This is the stuff yeah. that I'm gonna, you guys are going to have to forgive me. I'm going to get a little wordy. AJ, essentially coming of age here. We, he goes on a philosophical bent. He has a couple of great zingers. He basically owns his parents in the kitchen, and I feel like we've all been there, and parents have also been there. I will probably be there soon. Death just shows the ultimate absurdity of life is one of the things that he says. And then he says right to his mother's face, cold stare, there is no God. Just any thoughts and reactions to AJ's newfound philosophical bent? Uh, I mean, for me, it was just, it was such a jarring change in him that I feel like he must have really been confused and easy to just, like, make all these decisions. Like, I remember waking up one day and, and like, believing that nothing was real either. Like, it, it happened so so drastically. Like you While just, you were in Catholic school, right? Yeah. Just like me. Yeah. Exactly. And it just, it's just crazy. We saw it and I felt it very much like, damn, okay, he's, he doesn't know, he doesn't have his own identity yet. He's not making his own decisions. So he's just, like, really, whatever the English teacher thinks. Yeah, it was a little exaggerated for me. <laughs> with, and you have to if you're going to show this arc for a character in a single episode. But to uh, steal your parents' car, get in an accident, smoke weed, and then start saying this was just like they hit the acceleration on, on AJ. They needed to get him into the show, right? This, yeah. is the, this is AJ's coming out episode. Meadows had a few. This is AJ's moment to kind of ins- insert himself into the corpus of the show totally um did you guys go through a phase like this equivalent phase i was a pretty broody i was broody i was angsty did you have a philosopher of choice of your youth that you kind of quoted to your parents to try to make them feel stupid it's probably like some bad eminem lyrics (laughs) (laughs) i got into like hunter s thompson and tim leary way too early in my life yeah like i had some way out there philosophies so I was on the Nietzsche bent, just like AJ. Lovely. I studied theology in high school, right? But also, like, I, the counter to theology is is existentialism. Mm-hmm. I mean, my mom had no idea what I was talking about. I would drop it like people would drop Eminem verses because the things that he said, and still to this day, I went back to prepare for this episode— the lines that he's, you know, the, the stuff that he's written is still so poignant to this day. Yeah. It's aged very well, and it's very accurate. Um, would you challenge your mom? Like, would you deliberately want to ask her just to piss her off? Well, no, I would say, I would say, like, you know, what you're asking me to do is totally absurd. You know, what's the point? Like, yeah. why do I have to, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do that? Like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're just, you know, following the, the universe of people like sheep, you know? And I used to call her that like all the time, like when we're not sheep. And I used to quote theology to her and uh, from, you know, from my theology class. And she was just, was just like, what, like, what are you, what am I paying for? Yeah, <laughs> what is totally. this? Kind of like what uh, Tony says to Melfi. I told him it costs about 150 grand to bring him up so far. So if he's got no purpose, I want a fucking refund. <laughs> um, Meadows pull quote. Okay, so, so Meadows references Madame de Stael. De Stael. Who was a French intellectual during the Napoleonic era. And she was a critic of his and lived a lot of her life in exile because of it. I pulled some good quotes from her body of work. Do you guys have any? Any no. favorites? So That she, one was pretty good for That me. was a great one. She said a couple of things. Wit lies in recognizing the resemblance among things which differ and the difference between things which are alike. She also said, one must choose, and this is Meadows' line, one must choose in life between boredom and suffering, which kind of is a great precursor to this whole existentialist angst. Um, And then she has a couple of other sort of like love-related ones where she says, we cease loving ourselves if no one loves us. 
And love is the whole history of a woman's life, but it is an episode in a man's. This is from like 1789, you guys. Jesus. Um, It's pretty heavy. And then the last thing that she said that I really liked was, Search for the truth is the noblest occupation of man. Its publication is a duty. Which speaks to this podcast. I was just going to say that that's us. Yeah. (laughs) That we are searching for the truth, which is a very noble endeavor. And whatever we find... We are our publication of it is a duty, whether or not it is anything, mm-hmm. whether or not this is all just David Chase laughing at us. It is still a very noble endeavor. I would say if Nietzsche was. That's not what Nietzsche says. Oh, Nietzsche. That Nietzsche. which does not kill us makes us stronger. Yes. yes. Great line. Of his, again, that's, Amen. that line is still used to this day. People say it all the time. He so, also had one that I had to drop. He, he says woman was God's second mistake. Yeah, was that's like, a, like, that whoa. was aggressive. Who hurt you? Yeah. <laughs> so Nietzsche has a couple of other ones too. By the way, he's he's misunderstood. He's misunderstood by Hollywood too. He's considered somebody who was an anti-Semite. He's considered to be somebody who is anti-religion, but he's actually not. Um, there's a great write-up, and I'll link to it in the show notes. It's in Open Culture, and. He basically, I'll just read the quote to you real quick, but this this idea of Nietzsche being misunderstood, quote, the caricature arose in part because readers from this day to ours have, like Tony Soprano, found his complete and total rejection of Judeo-Christian morality too shocking to get beyond, mischaracterizing it as tantamount to the rejection of all human values. On the contrary, Nietzsche argued for the revaluation of values, the exact opposite of what one might expect. Not at all sad and gloomy, but much more like the new and barely describable type of light, happiness, relief, amusement, encouragement, dawn. So when I saw that, there's a, it's a long article and I'll post to it, but he wasn't doom and gloom. He was just asking us to look at things from a different prism. You know? He was a misunderstood guy with a really cool mustache. Yeah, really cool mustache. <laughs> John, you had that which does not kill us, makes us stronger. I have a great line. There's two great ones. Um, Naya might like the second one, actually. The one that I've actually used to a friend who burned me was, I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset that from now on I can't believe you. Mm. It's a great line. Um, Naya's mom agrees. Yeah. By the way, for those you, the listeners won't be able to hear this, but Naya's mom is in studio. Yes. And um, maybe I'll have some pull quotes for yeah, that as we well. Can get her. Maybe really, we can get some good Naya coming of age stories. Oh, God. oh yeah. Well, this is our first live show, guys. We, really? have, we have a live audience. Oh, that's true. <laughs> She can speak some Italian to us. Um, let's see. The other, this is the one I think thought you might like, Naya. Those who were seen dancing were thought to be insane by those who could not hear the music. Mm, Deep. True. He has one about music too. Without music, life would be a mistake. That is my thank you. That is my it's favorite true. Nietzsche quote. Yeah. I actually have that on my desk at home, like one of the three or four trinkets that I have. It's I have that line. framed. It's a great, great line. And it's a true line. Um, okay, skip and puss. We, do we know anything about the Philly shy business thing, or is it just all sort of to just give a little bit of color to their their conversation? I don't know. I didn't. I couldn't trace it back. I was also just really distracted by the cemetery, so yeah. it was a really hard to follow the conversation because I was like, "What in the world?" He lives literally yeah. right next to a cemetery. One could say death is at his doorstep. Yeah. Symbol. Isn't there a thing about people living next to cemeteries? 
There's like a thing. Like, am I making this up? Like, I mean, I'm sure there's some like morbid clinging freaks, and then also I'm sure it's probably pretty cheap. Yeah, it's true. But I felt like there's like a there was like a bit there was like a Seinfeld thing. Something Let's was see. like Let's sticking see. in my head about it, and I thought that if it's not tip of the tongue, then forget it. But I just feel like there was somebody has addressed this either comedically. It's like like George Carlin is coming into my head now. Really, I couldn't find anything. I did a couple of searches, and I was just like, ah, someone's talked about this before. Does Angie know? I think she knows and she doesn't care. So she knows that the feds have him compromised. I think, I mean, she probably, she doesn't recognize. I mean, how would she know who he is? You know, she goes to all the family events. I mean, he's, he's the kid's sponsor. He's basically the godfather for AJ. Like, who is this guy at my house in the morning? Like, I've never seen him before. I would be curious. So I have a feeling she knows. It helps that Skip is Italian. That's true. Uh, so he could just look like some... You just assume at this point that they don't even interact at all. They're just coexisting in this life. So I don't think she even cares. She's great in this episode. Yeah. But you could hear a pin drop. It was so early in the morning, and she was outside for who knows how long, and he was asking direct questions that were kind of anti-Tony. Mm-hmm. Um, I get the feeling that she knows. I get the feeling that she's living, you know, she's co-conspirator in, in this, but she's not going to say anything because she's being the dutiful wife. But... Her stare was the tell for me. Yeah. Did you you guys remember that? It was just devastating. Like, this is not ending well. All against the backdrop of a cemetery. Totally. Which is a little too allegorical, in my opinion. But I never noticed it before. This is the first time we've seen Pussy framed in that way. And we're not going to say anything about what happens. But the writing's on the wall, right? Mm Mm-hmm. So you think they specifically tried to find a house that had this view? I would think so. Initially, I was like, it's such a strange location. But now when you say it like that, like it, like as it is, a, maybe it's a hint to something. Mm-hmm. There's a hint to a lot for me here. Yeah. So a couple of three things, okay, that I want to point out to you guys. This frame, the cemetery frame, later the collision shop frame, okay, when, when, mm. uh, when he's sitting there and Tony and AJ pull up. And then the gas station when he's talking, he gets into a heated thing with Skip. And okay? Grasso. First, and perhaps a little too allegorical, like we mentioned, is the cemetery outside his house. It's bad enough that he lives next to one, but that the tombstones are seemingly encroaching onto his property is a little suggestive that they're about to subsume him, okay? That's the biggest signifier of death that mm-hmm. that David Chase could give us. The last two frames that I mentioned, there are harsh and intense sounds. So outside the collision shop, we see a train crossing by. Same headshot where there's a head, like we see with Tony, and there's a train literally barreling through the side of it. This is the third time we've seen that. We also see a bridge in the background, and I think you pointed out, John, the significance of bridges very early Mm -hmm. in the show. We see bridges three times. Amy is in the hotel room next to a picture of a Mm -hmm. bridge. I saw that too. But back to Puss. The sound of a train, which is harsh and jarring, and then later you get the sound of what I think is a chopper, which is enough to make you almost go mental. Again, I'm going to reference Heat because it sounds like that final scene with uh, De Niro and Pacino at the airport. You have that same tension, energy, power that's kind of overcoming you. The sounds are significant to me because we see it numerous times around Tony. And usually it's a transition to something really bad happening or something really bad about to happen. So we're getting all these breadcrumbs and we get them three times in this episode. So whether you know the show or not, you definitely feel like 
Pussy and Tony are headed on a collision course. Yeah. The final tell for me is when you see Pussy's head and the word collision right behind yeah, him. Yeah, I saw that too. Yeah. I had something similar with the, the train thinking that it was uh, the train's moving, you can't stop it now, Puss. Like, it's coming. People get ready a train a coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on. And then with the helicopter, it was... There's no escaping this. They're hovering over you. They're on top of you. Like, the FBI is there, and you can't get away from it. And cool. that. Uh, yeah. Beautifully put. Well said. Um, are you okay to move on to Melfi? Yeah, sure. Let's do Melfi. Uh, adolescent angst, we learn from Dr. Melfi, is very normal. My question is, and maybe Naya's mom can even chime in, is adolescent angst avoidable? Can a parent steer the child away from this angst and this torment and this torture of growing up in the world and leaving the nest? I don't think so. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Like, uh, I mean, you could say keep them involved or get them in sports and you keep them away from all that. But I remember watching so many people in college that didn't experience the angst at a younger age or didn't rebel. And then they had the opportunity as adults and just failed at life immediately. Yeah. Like, you, you kind of need to screw up a little bit when you're younger. I have a a very close connection to this uh, smoking marijuana uh, and confirmation. Yeah. So on the night before my confirmation was the first time I ever snuck out of my house and managed to like break the window on my way back in and had to tell this whole story and and got away with it and uh, and then told my parents many years later. But it was it was just it was bad. And then just the following morning to be like confirmed confirmed of your sins. Yeah. Melfi tells us that Anthony Jr. has stumbled into existentialism, which is what I think we all did at some point. I definitely stumbled into it, and then I became obsessed with it for a while, which is why I'm totally nerding out on this episode. So existentialism, for those that don't know or, you know, or those that kind of have heard the word but don't really get it, is really this, it's a simple idea, but it's very, it takes on very many various forms. But it's all about this idea that we're disoriented, confused, and filled with dread in the face of an apparently meaningless or absurd world. Basically, life is absurd. What's the point? That's existentialism in a nutshell. But the key, it's actually a positive message in my opinion, okay? I'm not an existentialist, but I do subscribe to this idea on why I I get a little frustrated when people misunderstand it because the key to an existentialist's existence though and the key to all this philosophy is that's true, life is absurd, but a true existentialist persists through this absurdity and this dread by finding their authentic self. So the whole idea is be what you're supposed to be and then go do that. And that's how you, I don't want to use the word cope, but that's how you get through the absurdity of life. And that's a kind of a positive message in my opinion. Yeah, which is also to me kind of the whole point of this episode, like calling it D-girl, which is like a development girl. Like AJ's in development. Like right. he, he's very much figuring oh, out, yeah. you know, this is his development. And also, you know, the whole thing of Chrissy's trying to develop a screenplay. Like to me, it was very much who is everyone's, everyone's trying to find their place and there's so many parallels that I found, but in development and figuring out what he wants to believe in, who should he follow, you know, whose whose ideas are stolen and who's not, you know, Chris. Well, you saying, have uh, a lot of decisions being made all at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you have the confirmation of AJ becoming a man. You have Christopher deciding and confirming where his next choice in life is yeah. going to be, and um, and Pussy 
gripping with uh, loyalty that he's not giving. Which is boredom yeah. and suffering, pussy suffering, Chrissy's bored. And AJ's mm. somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Everybody's going through the same angst. They just don't know it by, by yeah. those words. Yeah. The biggest criticism of, of existentialism is that it's a cop-out. Okay, that's what people say about it. It basically allows you to walk circles around boredom and laziness. It's a rallying cry to the opposite group of people that say carpe diem. Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of how people look at this. But I think that the argument misunderstands the philosophy. Because in many ways, like I just said, it's, it's a call to action. And it's, yeah. it gets Christopher to take action. It's more of a call to action than it is a stone wall to life. Well, it also, I mean, for everyone that does believe in religion, it makes us, everyone feel like that that ours doesn't exist. Like, right. That's why they attack it so much, yeah. I think, you know. Yeah. But being your best self, I feel like most religions, if you took an if you took a poll of all the major religions out there and you said like if this member of this religion was able to be them be their best selves, like would that be a positive virtue? And I feel like that's Yeah. If you could check that box off, you'd be a successful member. Totally. Um, I under I get that more than a Catholic which is just repent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be sorry all the time. <laughs> How great was Tony's line when Melfi breaks all this down for him? Sounds to me like Anthony Jr. may have stumbled onto existentialism. Fucking internet. Fucking internet. Yeah. So good. This is 2000, you guys. That line is still true today. I know. I will say it. As soon as my five-year-old or six-year-old comes home and says something, the first thing I'm going to say is fucking YouTube. <laughs> yeah, that's that's one of the age the best yeah, moments. Yeah. That's, a, that's sure. definitely for sure. I think so. I want to make a camera observation, if you'll indulge me for a second. Do you guys remember a few episodes ago when Melfi and Tony first got back together? The framing, it was wide angle. They seemed very distant. They had mm-hmm. no connection. And I became obsessed with that idea. So we've followed them now for three episodes and three sessions later. The use of the camera and framing to establish the reconnection between them in this episode kind of takes this argument or this observation and just brings it home. If you follow the sequence of frames that I posted online, it's a wide angle and then a high angle and then a low angle and then a close-up. This relationship, their closeness in the form of them, in the form of visual, it's not incidental to me anymore. It's a, it's a choreographed dance. Like, this was so intentional, and I just love that because we don't, they're doing their session, but the distance between them, it gets less and less over time, and it's a very beautiful artistic representation of the bond between two people. Definitely. I just wanted to say that. Oh, it's significantly different from uh, season one. And, yeah. And uh, their interaction in this episode was really short, but it was because I feel like he'd already established the trust, they've already got the rapport, and they was just hitting the notes. And she was asking him questions I don't think she would have asked in the, yeah. the previous. Yeah. They're on a different level, and it's a beautiful thing to watch. They're in development. Yeah. They're in development. Well, I think, I think, Past they're, I think they're in probably, post-production yeah. right yeah. now. Okay, let's move to the film set. A couple of quick intros. We meet Sandra Bernhard, who's a comedian and actor. She was on Roseanne from 91 to 97. She was also in Scorsese's film, The King of Comedy, which uh, Chris misnomers, as we hear in the show. And she won a National Society of Film Critics Award for her performance in that movie. She's also a musician. She's released 10 albums. Have you guys heard her music? No. No. She has a really unique look. She's got a strong face. Proportions. There you go. Naya, that's beautiful. Yeah, strong face. <laughs> um, she's also released three books. So she's kind of like a renaissance woman here. And then, of course, Janine Garofalo, who many people know, she's appeared in 50 movies, over wow. 50 movies. Uh, two factoids that I found on her that I thought were fascinating, just might be me personally, but I'll throw them out. She was slated to get Renee Zellweger's role in Jerry Maguire. Yikes. But it was, <laughs> conting- but it was contingent on her meeting a weight requirement. 
Oh, my, oh God. my God. Yeah. The second thing Fuck that was interesting that. was she was the first choice for the role in Fight Club that eventually went to Helena Bonham Carter. I can see that more. So she was a player, man. Those are two major big-time movies, and she was on the short list for, you know, the lead opposite the actor, up opposite the lead actor. She also co-starred in another TV episode entitled D-Girl uh, that was for a Law & Order episode. No, oh, way. no way. Yeah. Interesting. That's bizarre. Did you guys catch the Churchill shirt? Was yeah. it in this? She was wearing the Churchill shirt when Christopher talks to her at the end when we find out that John Favreau went back to New oh York. Oh my God, I totally And he drops that. all those Italian slurs and she's like, what'd you just say? Can I use that? <sighs> He's playing with us, David Chase. Soprano's oh. autopsy even pointed that out. They really? had the uh, uh, Churchill at Tony's house, then Churchill the dog. Yeah. And Churchill! Churchill. Yeah. Shout out to Soprano's autopsy. He had a field day with this episode too, right? Yeah. yeah. This episode is chock full. What was full. the movie they were shooting called? Female Suspects? I don't remember the name. The, it was Female Suspects on the back of the director's chair. Did you see the Silver Cup Studios shirt? The yeah. one, one of the, that was a nice little nod to Silver Cup Studios, which is, of course, where the show was filmed. John Favreau, just wanna, he, he needs no introduction, but suffice it to say that Swingers put him on the map, as John pointed out. The rest is history. He says a line in the episode, your character's strength is her passivity. Passivity is a fancy word for acceptance. I just thought it was an interesting line in the show, in, in a show dominated by men and women of action, instinct, and reaction. That passivity would be a strength. Again, Amy says to in this, Christopher in this yeah. scene about the silencers. Mm -hmm. And Soprano's autopsy alluded to this notion that this is just David Chase fucking with us. Yeah. And But he did it three times in this same scene. And this whole thing about passivity, I feel like he's he's leaving breadcrumbs. He's not fucking with us because I don't think he's an intentionally cynical, uh, sordid guy. But he's leaving breadcrumbs for us to pick up and chew if we want to or not. Yeah. Okay? I, that's, that's what I'll say on it. But it's a fun way to make fun of the industry. Yeah, it's a fun way to make fun of the industry, and it's also a fun way to have fun with what you're doing. Because let's be real, if you do the same thing every day over and over again, this coming up with shows, coming up with creative ideas, coming up with storylines can get tedious and boring. Yeah. This is a way to keep it interesting. Have you guys been on a set before? I have. What about you? Yeah. I mean, like, music video sets and stuff. Uh, similar vibe? And it's a similar vibe and to a T, like, we're losing light is, like, everyone <laughs> is always worried about light. So light. it was very real. To, light is everything. Yeah, which I thought was funny. That, like, it, that's exactly what happens on the set. So bukyak, as we know, <laughs> instead of bitch, okay? Uh, sounds more interesting. Is this a fairly commonly used word in Italian circles, or is it considered taboo, much like the C word? Mom? Now, wait a minute. I don't like that kind of talk. Now, just stop it. It upsets me. No. Okay. Didn't sound like it because yeah. no one else had heard it. Yeah. And he's like, if she's from Brooklyn, she should know. Yeah. But I asked my little short, small circle of people that would be in the know, and it's it's not. No, yeah. Um, it just sounds more interesting. I do want to say that Chris's deadpan uh, response on what it means when he says the C word, and then Favreau's response— collectively that was emmy worthy yeah it was his little fact, smile this, well christopher almost lost his shit and if you look at him i feel like there were a couple of takes that were done because he does say it and then he has no reaction which you can't help but have a reaction when you say it so instantaneously yeah. and everybody's looking at you and it's just a fun it was a funny scene it was bold of him to interject too i yeah, thought well, you know, he's he's christopher you know he's 
his ignorance is his bliss. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know that he's in a serious thing and he feels like this is my shit. This is my space. I'm almost a made guy. Fuck these people, you know? Totally. I thought maybe my reach, I thought it was interesting that to set that up for him to do that, her whole problem with the line was that it wasn't very interesting before she dies. Like she was bored with the line. And I was like, it kind of plays on this whole, like, is this all there is in life? Like I'm bored where she was like, is this the last thing she's really going to say to me? Which I thought was like, hmm, that's kind of a theme in this episode. Because, like, out of all the lines for her to say, it was like she just isn't happy with this last line before her lover kills her. I was like, yeah. oh, weird. Why didn't Chris take Adriana? Both of them were invited. Because he's just, he, no. He's, embar- like, he's embarrassed He's by embarrassed her. by her? Yeah. He wants to do it alone. Yeah, I don't think she could have played it cool like he <laughs> was. She would have been the, the starstruck. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to the Coke and a Slice, which, by the way, is one of my favorite lines of all time. Totally. It's a very New York line. I hate this scene. I hate this story. It makes me so upset. We're going to get into that, and I want to get your perspective. What was the stuff they were talking about, though? The laundromat across the street, Sinatra's guardian angel. Do you have any—do either of you have any history on what was going on there? Those are all, like, glorified mobster deals. Like, you know, you buy Sinatra's contract. That's a famous story where— you know, is it a true story? Yeah, it's a true story. Like Sinatra was a big gangster, and like his contract, it's like Frankie Valley. Like all his business was done on handshakes and deals. And like for normal people that aren't, you know, Italian or in the mob, they think it's like the coolest thing ever to hear these like stories. Like, oh man, he bought it for a dollar. He put the gun in his face. That's what all that was. They're just kind of like shooting the shit and like getting all the stuff. From getting him, him, getting him hyped up about yeah. mafia, making a mafia mm-hmm. film. Yeah, you go from these traditional famous stories and from an outsider's perspective, like, oh, it's so glamorous. Or even the reason we like this show is because it's it's got that edge. It's, it has criminal aspects to it. But then to juxtapose that <laughs> with this really graphic story of the nitty-gritty, like, these guys are killers. They're yeah. ruthless. And it makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, they it's almost a, stopped eating. They were like, whoa. Yeah. Which I thought was good because that's kind of where you, you get glamorized by the mob. And then all of a sudden you hear the story, they go too far, and you're like, holy shit, that's awful. <laughs> and just the way that Christopher Deadpan tells the story, like, it's yeah. eh, just it's, another day. And Favreau's yeah. face was, yeah. from a, was, a, was, perfect, was a perfect civilian face when you hear a story like that. Which, of course, then he stole, which is like a whole. Yeah, which is, but that's, that's Hollywood, man. There's no, there's no uh, protection on ideas. I actually looked know? into that because I was very curious because lately I've been having this, like, feeling of someone stealing my ideas. Like, it's a whole new—I say ideas. I don't know why. Idea. Ideas. Oh, I East Coast. Ideas. I, yeah, I know. Be, you do But you. it's so interesting. And, like, I was reading, like, Pirates of the Caribbean, The Matrix, The Last Samurai, Amistad. Those are all films that were challenged by a lawsuit claiming idea theft. Like, there's m- so much. And then you go into, like, what— constitutes like the property of what it's crazy so uh remember uh we'll get to in in later the um pussy's son he says jean paul sartre he copped it all from heidegger okay and this is uh, christopher's idea is getting copped by john favreau so every especially in this world like people are recycling ideas over and over again Mm -hmm. i mean we i mean i don't think we recycle soprano's autopsy but we definitely quote him but People are all looking at this show. Many, many hundreds of thousands and millions of people are looking at the show. You're gonna, there's gonna be some creative overlap in like your perspectives and takes and totally. ideas. It would be um, if we're both doing a, a screenplay about like a historic event. We would be talking about the same right. event, but like in our own ways. Well, you know? directly uh, get shorty with exactly. uh, Sopranos. You know, two yeah. 
the similar pitch of guy and a psychologist. Analyze this. Yeah. Also, music. Or, or, analyze this. Analyze That's what this. I was yeah. Not get shorty. Also, music. I don't want to put a number on it, but I would say more than fifty percent of songs out there are love songs. Yeah. And what everybody's and going through them, the same thing, and everybody's just interpreting it a different way. And most of them are copied and used again over and yeah. over, and sued every day. Uh, Canon yeah. D is used mm-hmm. in a million different songs. Totally. Yeah. Um, but it's an actual screenplay or treatment that are copyrightable. Therefore, the writer would have to prove that a finished film or television show is almost identical to his original screenplay, which is where they get they get fucked over. Yeah. Proving identicalness is a tough, tall order. Because she said, well, that story's not in here. Right. That's not in your screenplay. It's enough, and she's, she alludes to it, too. It's enough to just change the names. Mm-hmm. And that's why they say at the very beginning of these movies, the names have been changed to protect the innocent and whatever. That's all legal mumbo-jumbo to basically say, look, we, we, heard, this. The, we heard this story, <laughs> but we totally copped it, and there's nothing you can do about it because, you know, uh, the true made guys are not going to ever name names and name places because they would, that would be putting themselves they would be putting themselves six feet under, you know? <laughs> I've so, read, I forgot where it was. Uh, maybe I was talking to somebody that, like, the cheese scene yeah. uh, from previous episode was based off of an actual situation that had happened before. Uh, and it makes you wonder. Of, a lot of it is. Yeah. You know, like this whole idea of um, Joe Gallo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was, he's, he became an existentialist. And, and there, as we know, in, in prison, he became a reader. He became an avid reader of Jean-Paul Sartre, in a, who's an existentialist, one of the troika of existentialist thinkers out there. And he became glorified. I think Bob Dylan wrote a song about him at one point, which was kind of controversial. He did. And in the new movie that uh, Martin Scorsese is doing right now, he's one of the characters. He's played by an actor, Joe Gallo. So this... Th- these stories about what he did and what he did in the can, whether it's true or not, only really he knows. And everybody's recycling it and kind of fashioning it into amazing content that we'll all devour because it's interesting. Yeah. Who knows whether it's true or not. So you're okay with the Dunkin' Donuts bag. The Dunkin' Donuts bag was like nails on a chalkboard for me. Well, I was, the, the whole time I was like, what's in the bag? What's in the bag? And then he put a script. And I was like, oh, that's what's in the bag. Of course that's what's in the bag. A little product placement there? Fair to say? Maybe. I think it's like a Jersey. Th- I mean, to it's me, a Jersey it, thing? it's okay. a Jersey thing. Well, it's I'd a New York thing. I'd be, oh, no. I'd be really bothered. I'd rather have nothing. I'd rather just have the paper <laughs> paper rolled up and under my arm. You would have it like laminated though and all like protected. I'd have it in a, I'd have it in a binder. Yes. Let's be real. <laughs> I'd have it in a three-hole punched binder. <laughs> You'd have it color-coded with little tabs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On the uh, product placement topic, yeah. uh, at the Coke and a Slice, they walk in front of a big uh, Snapple refrigerator. Oh, and they Coca-Cola. love Snapple, Snapple is everywhere in this series. Yeah. It's a, we, Snapple was a big deal in the 90s. Yeah, we drink a lot of Snapple. Do you? I don't know if it's an Italian Do thing. Do they still but, have the facts on the couch? Yes. Or sometimes they're just like, you're going to have a great day. It's like, fuck you. <laughs> I want a fact. Um, before we leave uh, this scene and move on to the next thing, uh, the Fleetwood Mac song that pops up when Chris starts talking about the 15 years ago piece of ass story was perfection mm. rhiannon is the song so good and if you look at the lyrics to rhiannon it's very comparable to this whole storyline of amy yeah. amy to me is rhiannon yeah um, i can see that isn't wow. that great yeah it's it could there was there's an argument that maybe it's to talk about this person who's the transgender uh, individual who is a piece of ass but i think it was more amy because the camera keeps cutting to amy cutting to amy cutting to amy as christopher's telling the story and, and noshing on his pizza do you guys think John Favreau was afraid of Chrissy? Like, yes. Because Amy doesn't seem to be afraid, but he seems slight, like, because he's insulting, Chrissy's insulting him yeah. back and forth. Pussy assness. Yeah, and Amy interjects to kind of stop it, but I've always was like, 
did did they ever intend to really read his script or was he she just bringing him out like hey i know someone in the mob like dance tap dance for john favreau like it's like a, to help my career yeah yeah well we talked about this a few episodes ago like why women are drawn to this the rebel yeah he he personifies that in spades to her but i think um, overall she doesn't she's just using him though like that that one moment in the bar she was slightly like okay he's like mysterious and sexy but now i'm just going to use him to get ahead with john favreau right both. So she wasn't using him for physical. She was using him for career or both? Or I think just career. And if she has to sleep with him, she has to sleep with him. She was on top, which I thought was interesting. That Chrissy She was in control. Yeah. The D girl getting a little D. Mm-hmm. There you go. Excuse me? Excuse me, I'm a vice president. You fucking asshole. <laughs> she references uh, the crying game. I've never seen it. Have you seen it? No. The the story that he's telling parallels the story in The Crying Game. I went so far as to read the plot in Wikipedia because I hadn't seen the movie. Where does she mention The Crying Game? After he tells the story about the acid. Got it. Okay. And I just feel like it's this is another classic tell, or what's the word I'm looking for? It sort of shows how well-written it is because this is a classic thing that someone in the industry does is always liken everything to a pre-existing project. Yeah, like a reference. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Pussy and AJ. Can someone break down confirmations in general, explain the purpose of a confirmation, and then explain the purpose of a sponsor? So in Catholicism, uh, you enter in baptism, and then around like second or third grade, you receive First Communion, which allows you to participate in the Sunday Mass. And you can get communion, get the Have host. the communion, and then confirmations, you're... You're becoming an adult in the Catholic world. So is confirmation like a bar mitzvah yeah. or a bat mitzvah? Yeah. yeah. Okay. There's the three sacraments. Those are three sacraments that you need in order, or not anymore, but you needed to have all three sacraments to get married in a church. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So you would have to have the like the trifecta, which is like the Holy Trinity. And they've waived that requirement now? Yeah, because now the church has so many bad marks against them. They're like, as long as you were baptized, you can get married here. You That's, got a pulse? Come on. Yeah. Oh. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's one of my favorite um, Johnny Sack lines. We bend more rules in the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> so I was confirmed. Were you confirmed? Yep. Yeah. What is a sponsor? What is the purpose of a sponsor? It's basically like when you're baptized, you have a god godparents. It's yeah. basically like a godfather, which is why he says, where's the godfather later right. in, for the photo? But there's a difference because Pussy is his godfather and his sponsor. The two can be different people. It's right? basically like a role model for how to live your life positively and like you can go to him to talk how ironic. to. Like an uncle. How ironic for that Puss is the role model. It's crazy. I'm a kid yeah. sponsor for Christ's sake. <laughs> yeah. I'm ratting on your dad and I'm your role model. Wow, that's, fa- that's, that's deep. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so the batting cage. A uh, couple of things here. So Nietzsche, Sartre, and Kierkegaard are all mentioned in this little, little speech that, uh, is it Matt yeah. Bonpensero? That Matt Bonpensero tells AJ. Um, they're considered, like again, by many to be the troika of existentialist thought, even though they had varying views on religion and self. The thing that I found interesting about this scene, though, you guys, is the batting practice transition. Trying to hit a ball or do any activity that requires coordination is an act of being present. And being present or living in the moment is an antidote to existentialist angst, right? So it was interesting th- that AJ was just doing as opposed to asking why. Again, 
probably deep, probably a reach, but the the contrast was interesting. They were talking about nothing means anything, but then go try to hit a baseball. Yeah, and he didn't. Um, he resisted at first. He's he like, I don't want to hit. First. I don't want to hit. He's like, like, I want to watch. Yeah, yeah that watch. was. And then shout out to Master P for being the leading philosopher <laughs> in AJ Soprano's hierarchy of philosophers. Be a leader, not a follower. Cue the music. I know. But um, also his response is so true. Like, rap is so, like, not Commercial. That, yeah. Um, okay, the D-Girl hotel room scene. Um, there's a reference to Union Square Cafe. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned that because Danny Myers, it was Danny Myers' first restaurant. He's also the guy behind Shake Shack. I don't think really? there's... Really? Yeah. Ooh. Danny Meyer's a big, good big fun deal. fact. Yeah, good that. fun fact. I'm a big Danny Meyer fan. He has a great philosophy on business, like a business ethos, and um, he's my guy. He makes a good burger. He makes a good burger. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I Did know. You, do you guys study this? Do you guys remember this? I remember it vividly. Yeah. You went to Catholic school, right? They yeah, but I didn't pay attention. Okay. <laughs> so I paid attention, of course, as you would imagine, and... Uh, I was a little bothered that Amy didn't finish the hierarchy of needs, so I'm going to go ahead and finish it for everybody real quick. It's a pyramid structure. At the very bottom, it's physiological, so food, water, sleep, shelter, sex, okay, basic needs. The next level up is safety, personal, emotional, financial, and health. The third tier of the pyramid is love and belonging, but that's the love of friendships, intimacy, and family. And then the fourth tier of the pyramid is esteem. So things like ego and status. And once man or woman has accomplished all of those feats, the very top of the pyramid is self-actualization, which is defined as, again, I'm quoting here, mate acquisition, parenting, utilizing your talent, finding a talent, then utilizing that talent, and then pursuing a goal, and then ultimately seeking happiness. Where do you guys think that Chris is on this hierarchy? Since the show is so much of the show right now is about Chris and his arc, where do you think he is? Is he at the physiological stage? Is he at the safety stage? Is he at the love and belonging stage? Is he at the ego stage? Or is he at the self-actualization stage? Deep question, but I just want to float it because our listeners will send us thoughts as well. But any initial reactions to that? What do you think? I think he's right now just on the bottom. That's what I think, too. Yeah. He's not really there yet. He's still trying to figure out how to survive. I'm with you guys. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't reached the financial security that he wants. Um, He has his health, but, you know, for the most part, um, that's fleeting for as far as we know. Um, You can, we can say without giving it away that he gets very close to the top of that pyramid mm -hmm. by the end of the series. A lot of characters do. Let's do, let's do, let's make it a thing between the three of us that we will come back to this Maslow's hierarchy of needs with respect to characters throughout the show. I love it. I'm so happy. Yes, deal. I'm happy you answered those because my notes were, what are you talking about, Amy? What did this, was this something I studied in school? Is she making this up? I hate this hotel. (laughs) That's a great hotel. Soho (laughs) Grand. Shout out Soho Grand. Look, uh, I actually was bothered. I'm old enough to know, like, to not be, like, seduced by all these sex scenes. I was like, wait a minute. Finish your thought. Finish your thought. Don't make me look this up. Don't make me look this up. So I looked it up. It's actually fascinating stuff. The guy, Maslow, is actually a very interesting character. And we'll just, we'll make a point to bring this up again as we go forward with these characters. Maybe after they get whacked. I think Mm -hmm. this is just her move to get her game on, too. Yeah, of course. Of course it is. She's trying to, like, seduce him intellectually which clearly works. So what is it about her that he's attracted to you guys? Is it her brains? Is it her power? Is it her anti-Adriana? Well, that's what I was trying to figure out because I couldn't tell what his intent was with make, like, you know, she's like the Adams family. Like she doesn't look like a woman, like that dress, but then he's sleeping with her. So then I'm like, 
is he just sleeping with her because then she he can get a script, or is he just a sleazebag? Like it's his cousin's wife. Like I, I think I he, can't tell. Yeah, I, I think he just had the opportunity, and he doesn't have the self control. An attractive woman in a robe at a hotel starts sitting close to and there are no repercussions right like does adriana have any recourse would adriana go nuclear on her if if she found out i don't know later we hear that she would have if 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 it was if something was reversed but i don't know what about chris's cousin does he have any recourse or is he no sol he's just a skinny guinea but he even compliments her shoes later like i like those manila blonics what was that what was that all about why did, the why, camera, why did the camera fixate on the shoes? Is it anything more than a product placement? sexy. Because earlier he said how much he hated her clothes. That's why I thought it was so interesting that he was making fun of her clothes. And she's like, that's Prada she was wearing. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, suddenly he likes the shoes now. So it's like, I don't really, I think he was lying to her. He doesn't know what's a good shoe, but it's a Manolo Blahnik and it's a great shoe. Are Manolo still like, is he still king of the hill? Manolo's are up there, yes. Okay. Uh, Carrie Bradshaw, Sarah Jessica Parker probably made them the most famous in Sex in the City. If really? we really want to get into shoe history. All right. mm-hmm. But they but they've aged well. They're still they've aged they're still go to. Okay. Yes, yes. Are they more classic at this point? Yes. They're, 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 not they're like a Louboutin. They're like a Louboutin, like okay. a classic, expensive shoe. Like Do you guys thousand dollars? Yeah, they could go somewhere between they start at least like six hundred and up. Right. Could it have ever worked out between them? No. Uh, but she's married. I, mean, I don't know. No. So I have a Netflix show later save them, on. Save but, them. Yeah. We got a bunch. I got a yeah. bunch. I'm excited about that. Okay, I'm going to jam The ambulance chaser. So we can get there. Later, when Chris and Favreau are hanging out in the hotel room, Favreau's afraid to tell Chris about the script because he doesn't want to get whacked, right? Is it as simple as that? He's scared shitless. He's wiping, wiping the gun. He doesn't want to tell him that a script is bad. That was a great subtle detail, too, that I had missed from watching the it. wiping of the gun yeah yeah really cool yeah. i wonder if that was by design or just ad lib from farva yeah good call yeah. I, I would imagine yeah i don't think it would have been scripted. they might have talked about it but i don't i feel like it wouldn't have been scripted but he what did he wipe it with a cloth a tissue the which t- he then which he then keeps yeah and then he gets on a plane and goes back to la the next day so funny <laughs> He he was great in this episode. Yeah, There's a lot of shit on him on this. So he was like, a, no, but like he acted exactly as I totally would have been the same way, basically. Like a civilian who has knows nothing about the mob, who's at, sitting in a hotel room with a guy who just is strung out on coke and is waving a gun at him and then throws a gun at him and then does a mock bang, bang execution in his head. And then goes, so what'd you think of my screenplay? Yeah. <laughs> I would have been like, I would have gone to the bathroom, I would have locked the door, and I would have dialed 911. <laughs> <laughs> Kudos to John Favreau. I think he did a great job. But that's what's so funny about it, because he wants to be in on the mob. Like, he wants to know, but he's just such a, such a wuss. I got a good segue for you guys, okay? So the sex scene happens in the hotel room, and then it cuts to Livia Soprano, who's bedridden in the hospital. Yeah, okay? that was great. Just classic. That is David Chase just having the last laugh, right? So let's talk about Livia really quickly. She has some of the best zingers in the episode, right? Why does there always have to be a purpose? Which is a great line. I actually agree with her. Why does there always have to be a purpose, you know? Because I want to do this podcast. Yeah. And then... It's all a big nothing. What makes you think you're so special? To her grandson, mm-hmm. okay? Here's a question for you guys, though, and give me your visceral reaction. She says you die alone. Do you agree with her? Yes and no. Yeah, I mean, you do. Depends how you choose to see it. I agree with you. I feel like that's that's on you. Whether you, you die a, alone yeah. is on you. Yeah. At a certain point, at a certain period of time, uh, you make you make choices, and you kind of like 
you, you have to make your bed and you have to lay in it kind of thing. And, um, so I don't agree with it, but I feel the, the sentiment because I know people in my life that will die alone, but I don't want to die alone. I hope I don't die alone. You won't pick. Dinner scene with Tony Carm Aid and Chris. Naya. So good. What's so important about fresh produce? Everything. Everything. And Lisa and my family, we're having a meal and we're talking about what we're going to eat next. Like, we're literally full and we're wondering where we should eat next. If you're cooking for other people, if you're having people over, do you buy produce the same day or is it night before okay? It depends what, I mean, I'm cooking for my family tonight and I haven't gotten the shrimp because I'm going to go get it after. After this. Yeah, but I have all the pasta and all the other things I need. It's like a whole to-do. And when you're married, you know, I would imagine there's less and less to talk about. I'm a big uh, buying produce the night that I'm cooking something. Me too. I hate leaving it and I always get angry that I've... Wasted all that lettuce or something. The refrigerator does something in the first 24 hours to stuff that you buy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the same. It changes the it changes the chemistry of the food. Same day if you can help it, right? That's like a very much first world problem. But I love that he said fava beans too. Yeah. Is that a Italian staple? I mean, yes and no. We love like, like a... Uh, it yeah, made me think yeah, of Silence of the Lambs. I know that's, that's what I thought too. Time I heard about it. Yeah, right. it totally, and it takes you away from the scene. You're thinking about Anthony Hopkins instead yeah. of listening, thinking about the scene. Is Chris mad because he's unsure about Adriana, or is it because he's unsure about this thing of ours? He's unsure that no one's gotten back to him about the script, and he's frustrated, and he doesn't want to talk about Prejute and at all talk about marrying Adriana. That's at least what I took from it. Yeah, he he's just gotten back from this life or a, a peek into what it could be if he gets it's involved absurdity. in Hollywood and all these things. And then he's back to right where he is and feeling the pressures of the future being laid in on being made or getting married. And he's at a crossroads. The camera pushing on Tony when he says a screenplay. And yeah. I was just like, wow, like yeah. that's such a camera moment. Classic TV. Yeah. Yeah. Classic yeah. TV. Since I don't have an NBA reference this episode, I tried really hard, you guys, to come up with one. I am going to do an art drop here. It kind of, David Chase does it for me. Carmela says Caravaggio right after Chris's shadow shot and that dinner restaurant scene. You can't make this stuff up, you guys. I never caught that before. There's a direct reference to Caravaggio when they frame Christopher. So it's intentional. Mm -hmm. This is is all I'm going to say is that it's super intentional. um, And I don't think his quality has suffered. They talk about the Caravaggio's quality has suffered. I disagree completely. I disagree That's a slam dunk connection there, Vic. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Thank you. Maybe it'll come up impromptu. Maybe I can come up with one. Um, Before we do the final round, I just want to kind of like shout out the puss and Angie scene. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. How powerful was that? It was great. It was so great. And then at the end where they're in Tony's house and Tony goes, were you proud of him up there? And Angie goes, oh, yeah. Where's Calm? In the kitchen. Like to me, it was like just so, just even asking if he was proud of him. Holding the facade up to keep public appearances. Just keeping it together. Classic. I feel like we've all been there at some point too. Like you just do what you got to do to like get through the day. And the way that the way that pussy screen like says Angie tries to like reach for her and she's already gone. And the son too, like he, he didn't really have his moment. We'll talk about that. Got, like, Do you think, but this is where we've, I know we've talked about before moments where we thought pussy might've been wired up. He had such a violent, like negative reaction to wanting to put this wire on. It looked like he didn't even really know how. And I don't know if maybe 
it was because it's in God's house. He says he doesn't want to wear a wire in God's house, if that was the guilt, or if he hasn't really worn a wire as often as we think he has. Yeah, that was my notes for you, because we've always speculated um, that if he did have it, uh, he yeah, it was coming to grips a lot with yeah. that whole thing. Do you think if Matt didn't come in and stop that, that he would have killed? <clears throat> Kill? No. Beaten within like an inch of her life? Perhaps. Because yeah. he, he is projecting his rage onto someone. And some sadly in life, this what happens is that the convenient person is the person that you live with or that you care for. And it, they're just an easy target. But he's totally, look, I, I'm with you both. He would have been already been clean shaven there. Yeah, I would have known how to do it. I would have known how to do yeah. it. He wouldn't have done it with a dry, dull razor. He's really coming to grips with it. And I think you and Justin in the very beginning of this were like, you know, fuck him, he's a rat. But I've I've always had a sentimental place for him because he was busted. You know, he he did have a choice. He could have gone to jail or whatever, but he wants to make sure that his son's okay. So he's so tormented. He's got, he, he wants to make sure that his son is okay. He wants to make sure that he can go as far along down this path without screwing Tony. And um, I don't, he's a rat, but I, I, I find him as a really tragic, like sentimental figure. I still do. I hate him the most because he's a horrible husband. That's really yeah. where you really realize he's a horrible, horrible husband. And as much as Tony and Carmela have their issues, and yes, you know, Tony's not talking to the feds. I'm sure that puts a big strain on a relationship. But just the fact that they're just so distant, and you can tell how distant their relationship is. She's like, that's the only room with good light. And he's in there trying to wire up. Like, it's just so... so they're in two different planets. And it's it's really sad. It was like, really, really sad to me. You don't... We talked about this. You don't think it's because he's trying to distance himself from her to protect her? No. no. I think he does. I mean, you know, and then he's a good father, but he's not a good husband. You know, there's a there's a big difference still. You got to be both. And I hate that. I, people say, oh, he's a good father, but he's like, he's shitty. Look, the best thing you can do as a parent is love the mother. Of course. That is like the, it, it was, oh, he's, he's, he's a terrific father. Like, that's such a, like, it's I hate a cop that. Out, it yeah. really bothers me when I hear people say that. Agreed. Um, final round. You guys ready? Ding, ding. Most rewatchable scene. I like the scene with AJ confronting Carmela and Tony about God. That That is just... When they're priceless. towering over him, yeah. but he's owning it. And Tony looks at Carmela like, you got this? Yeah. <laughs> Tony. Tony's clueless. Yeah. Carmela, bless her for getting through she that. She tries. Yeah. What about you? Uh, I like the club scene in the beginning. Uh, just the what they're wearing oh, yeah. uh, and in com- a contrast to everyone else and just the conversation and the ambiguity of like what did he say to him christopher walks in so confident right like i own this club but then he's sitting down and he's reduced to a stoop you know (laughs) really good contrast um for me it was the most rewatchable scene is the set where Mm. bukiak what's that mean yeah and then everybody just kind of like holding their shit together to get through it uh favorite scene I like the one where he gets caught smoking weed. I don't know why. Just be a f- good Catholic for fucking 15 minutes. Like, it's like, yeah. Melfi explaining existentialism to Tony for me. Oh, Again, that's I'm, I'm going to be one. predictable with this favorite scene stuff because Melfi g- gets me at hello. Um, but least favorite scene. I It was a necessary scene, but I hated seeing pussy crying in the bathroom. That was not my least favorite, but it was just my hardest scene. That, that this The ending for this this episode is one of the hardest ones of all episodes for me. Uh, I had the Grasso and Skip gas station. It was... They're just kind of like leading us along and teasing us. It's getting a little, like you said, Naya, last week, it's getting a little tedious. Mm-hmm. Just do something. Yeah, already. the pressure that they're putting on him yeah. is unnecessary. 
Um, biggest nitpick. I'm with you on the Dunkin' Donuts yeah. bag. It's a little strange. Bothered me. Favorite quote? Be a good Catholic for fucking 15 minutes. This is so William Ing. Inge. Inge. Who's yeah. an American playwright, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Killed himself. Carbon monoxide poisoning. Well, that's because he only wrote about strange sexual relations. Yeah. <laughs> Do we think Ad- uh, Chrissy really liked her when he says that? I really liked you. I think you... I think what does that mean? I think he's confused. I feel like you see a glimpse of what your life could be, like a parallel universe, that sliding doors, that Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. movie. You get in this train, your life turns out that way. You go in this train, your life turns out this way. I feel like everybody gets to that. Uh, to me, it's like a, like a Robert Frost poem. Totally. You know? And he has, a, he has an out. And, and uh, Tony, I'll, I'll summarize it at the end, Tony give, effectively gives him an out. Do you think he took the road less traveled by? I, th- I think he took the easy path for him. Yeah. Given his no. life station, he took the easy path. My favorite quote was the Master P quote. Be a leader, not a follower. <laughs> Just because AJ says it, the AJ says it with such confidence, and all the other ones obviously are zingers beyond belief. But I just that one made me laugh out loud, and I don't remember hearing it. By the way, Master P's office is right above us, and really? one over. Yeah, Master P's production company is right up and over. What up? Yeah. Any lessons learned from this episode? Yeah, I mean, to me, this was like you got to either do what's right and and suck it up and do the tradition, or you venture out and. I don't know. The ending to me was very like, because yeah. just because I've seen the whole series so many times, like, you know, Pussy's suffering and Chrissy's bored and he chooses to go back in. And the, all the while that amazing song is playing uh, Verity Maria, which is like a very iconic Catholic yeah. aria. So yeah. you're just like. Yeah, I mean, I, I get reminded a lot that life is all about choices and there were some significant choices made in this episode. Yeah. My lesson was to go back to Jamie Lynn Sigler and Meadow, learning never stops. She's like, real education is not just about making money. The more you know, also, the more you realize how little you actually know. Like, just even just even existentialism. Like, I spent a good hour or two in that space, but it could have rabbit-holed into a one-week dissertation. And there's just so much like knowledge out there and this show kind of like this episode and one of the reasons why the podcast exists is because even going back after all these years there's so much stuff that you can unearth totally netflix the fun part could a netflix the question that we will ask every week is could a netflix series be spun off on the basis of this episode and what would it look like i came up with three what say you guys i want to hear you guys this first uh, I have two. Okay. I have uh, the English teacher from Overland. <laughs> uh, it's like, this is education sort of uh, vibe. And uh, you, you get to observe his class and he screws up kids' minds and like the, upsets like a, parents. Like an opposite of the Dead Poet Society? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And then I have uh, the D wedding, which <laughs> is um, Amy's getting married and Chris is at the wedding and there's like the closure of... You know, did we yeah. make the right choice? And maybe he like sleeps with her right before the ceremony or something. I don't know. Okay. Or, li- or like the big twist is uh, his cousin finds out. Well done. Well done. You want to hear mine or do you want to go? Uh, no, I want to hear yours. Mine okay, so I got I a series about the D girl 20 years later, but she runs a studio. So she's ahead of a studio and it's kind of her like, maybe she's trying to take on a mafia project. Okay. The second one is called the Multisantis, which is the D girl and ambulance chasers... Married life, okay, life as a couple. They are having, they're expecting a little one and maybe they name him Christopher, who knows. <laughs> um, and then finally, Sacrifice Fly, the Matt Bonpensero story, okay? That's, yeah. It's all about the marketing. 
It's yeah. so funny. Okay. Did you have any? Mine were following Amy, like Amy's Amy's Chasing choice. Amy. Yeah. And then it was the the son too. It was the Bump and Zeros. Yeah, because I feel like we only see him this one time. Yeah, we don't really see their family life, which would have been funny. No. Like a pussy going up to visit visit him at where did he go? Colgate? Is that where he ended? I feel like he went to a better school than Colgate. No disrespect. He to had Colgate. a a Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt? Yeah, was maybe it? there, okay. yeah. Yeah, because uh, Pussy was talking about getting me into the Ivy Leagues. Yeah. Uh, last call. Did I miss anything? Not for me, just how it all ties into development. Yeah. I thought was really interesting. And AJ wore a champion shirt, and in that scene with Olivia, it's 3 o'clock on the, on the clock behind him, which I thought was interesting because there's this weird reoccurrence of 3 o'clock. I don't know what three the number three means Pretty or what times. three o'clock means to, to David Chase, but it said three o'clock, which I was like, what? I always try to look for that yeah. to, on like the third watch through in mm-hmm. preparation. It's just like, what's in the background? Yeah. What time is it? I love how we discuss like how many watch throughs. We're trying to one up each other on how many watch throughs we've done for the episode. <laughs> um, okay. Are you ready? For I would my- want to watch. Oh, actually, I would want to see that movie Female Suspects that they make. Oh, yeah. That would be a good Netflix show. Like a, like a two-hour movie. movie. Netflix yeah. movie. Oh, we already know the ending now. That's true. Okay. You guys ready to indulge me for one last thing? Of course. Okay. Reach away. So, the backdrop, when Chris is in the room, when he has the final showdown with Amy, they're in an office of an actual real-life talent agent. He's actually John Favreau's talent agent in real life, I, I, I believe. Forget his name. But the backdrop when Chris says to the D-girl, like, I really liked you, and they're talking, and she's towering over him, there's a painting behind him, and it's a bunch of squiggly lines. And that, to me, demonstrates this idea that the path to success is rarely a straight line. I'm sure you guys have heard that before. The backdrop in the frame reminds me of not only that, but shortly after the scene, Christopher and I, you started to go down this road. Shortly after the scene, Christopher is given 10 minutes to fully devote himself to Tony and that thing of theirs or to go chase whatever's calling him outside, right? Everything up to this point was squiggly lines of confusion. But in an instant, Tony helped lock in some momentary clarity. I felt like I was in a Robert Frost poem for a second, like I mentioned earlier. As Chris goes from close-up to wide angle, you feel like he's two roads are diverging in the wood, and he has to figure out what, he's, what road he's going to take. A fundamental premise of existentialism is pushing through the angst and despair of life by being your authentic self, which we mentioned earlier. When Christopher gets up from the steps, we see him from a low angle. Mm-hmm. For a moment, we think he's going to take a step down and actually leave and go chase that thing. Recall his face when he walks onto the set. Recall the close-up of his face when he walks on the set. And now think back to the close-up on his face when he steps outside of Tony's house. It's the difference between what could be and what is. When he turns around, he's pushing through the angst and despair that is the absurdity of his life and resuming existence in it as his authentic self, as Tony's heir apparent. To use a Frederick quote, uh, he who has a why to live can bear almost anyhow. And, and that kind of resonates from what you've said. Beautifully put. Yeah, I like that. Great episode. You guys, it was awesome to be with you on a Sunday. We'll be back next week talking about episode eight, which is the episode with the jacket. Yes. Uh, As always, thank you, John. Thank you, Naya. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. 